Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Electric Hotel was a silent film made in 1908. Dominic Smith has used the birth of the film industry in his latest novel, also entitled The Electric Hotel. So, Dominic, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much. Good to be here. The central character, if I can put it that way, is actually film (laughs) and the influence it has had on people and society. Your interest in film? I've been a closet cinephile for for a long time, uh, although I was pretty new to silent film. And, and I think part of the reason is that even if if you grow up as a as a film fan, silent film has kind of suffered from um, almost a kind of visual stereotype. So when most people conjure silent film, they think melodrama, they think slapstick, they also think kind of jittery, slightly accelerated footage. And I was delighted to discover through this the vehicle of the novel that that's all mostly that the, the acceleration is mostly the result of a technical fault. So actually, silent films were intended to be and often were as seamless as any film you would see today. And so, to your point, silent film as a medium, the birth of film uh, really is the kind of overarching narrative and to some extent the main character uh, in this book well going back to the original uh, the electric hotel yep. a curious piece about the introduction of electricity yeah uh, yeah so uh there was a spanish director named segundo de chamon uh who in 1908 makes this film called the electric hotel uh and it's it's quite simple it's about i think six minutes long um and it's about a couple that check into a madrid hotel uh, and strange things begin to happen, like their luggage, uh, you know, ascends the stairs as if by its own volition, it goes up to their room. Inside the room, you see that the man's shoes are being polished as if by invisible hands. Uh, you see uh, the wife, uh, her hair is being brushed out uh, in a similar fashion. And what you cut to at the end is you, you cut to a, a kind of um, almost like a, a substation where there's someone frantically running around and turning off circuit breakers and you realise this is the result of electricity run amok. But in some ways, it serves, that film, that original, uh, serves as a metaphor for what you're doing here in terms of the influence of film in society. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a metaphor on a, on a, on a more kind of tangible level. It was the inspiration for building an hour-long feature in the book, uh, that takes the germ of the electric hotel, really the idea of a hotel uh, that has a kind of surreal atmosphere, uh, and, and I kind of repurposed that. But but I think, more importantly, the original electric hotel was a lost film for many years and that was rediscovered, and I wanted to pay homage to that. And you're right, there is a metaphor there that is about um, electrification, uh, both physically as, you know, uh, in, in, in the Electric Hotel feature film, this is a hotel that has recently been electrified to attract new guests. But on a metaphoric level, you could say that the new medium of film electrified audiences the world over. And changed and transformed lives. So this is where we get to the characters. You have Claude Ballard, who meets the Lumiere brothers, which is the beginning of his career as a film director. 
And one of the pieces Claude takes is of his dying sister to prove his uh, credentials or his creativity to the Lumiere brothers. And that becomes a pivotal moment in his life in some ways. It does. I mean, that's a complicated uh, moment and scene. Uh, His sister, who's dying of consumption, uh, gives Claude permission to film her death and and in her own way wants to be immortalized. I mean, the thing that, that was really fascinating about film early on, whether it was in medical settings or, you know, entertainment or even later in, in World War I, uh, there was a sense with this new medium of, of people could be uh, memorialized in this medium in the same way that in the middle of the 19th century with photography, you had things like, you know, funeral port- portraits. Uh, people wanted to be immortalized and captured on this medium that in some ways people thought would last forever. But this notion of life and death then. But it's also a driving force for Claude because in many ways this great film he ends up uh, creating tries to recapture that in some ways. Yeah, he's... um you know, as a, as a character, he's wired uh, a particular way. So when he's uh, young, he has this fever that warps his corneas. And so he's had, uh, you know, he's been wearing glasses since a very young age. And so he's literally viewed the entire world through a frame. Uh, later on, when he comes to film and he has that kind of epiphany around his sister's death and he sees the way audiences respond to this very poignant and very kind of touching scene he starts to really become obsessed with the idea of consuming the world and curating the world uh, in terms of what's on the other side of the viewfinder. And, and to some extent, there's a certain kind of tunnel vision because when you're looking through a viewfinder, you, of course, don't see what's going on around the frame. Uh, and that's Claude's kind of Achilles heel in and, some ways. And Claude's perspective. But also then you've got several other characters who all sort of represent other facets of the film industry. Yep. Sabine Montrose. Yeah, Sabine Montrose is kind of this iconic French stage actress. She's a little bit modelled on Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, who also made some some early films. She's had this very kind of troubled youth, lost her mother at a young age uh, to suicide, came to acting and theatre as a way of really feeling some sense of belonging in the world. But what happens in her career as film evolves and there's the rise of what I would call celebrity culture um, is that there starts to be this quite difficult relationship between her uh, public and her audiences and the nature of the kinds of roles that she plays. But also then, yes, the reaction, there's there's a, a film of her in the bathtub, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. But the reaction then, it divides society. Yeah, and yeah. this was actually what you found early on in film because it was a, a kind of medium where there weren't established standards. So you saw things that titillated audiences um, but there was also often a moral pushback. So, you know, Theta Barra, who was often considered to be the first vamp, right? So she was this actress who had all this kind of sexual allure. Um, people really struggled with the idea that an actor could play a role like that, and they weren't somehow um, smeared by that lack of morals in their real life. But it speaks to what film does, where we take it as a form of reality. Yes, and unlike you know, the Victorian stage where many of these actors came from early on, uh, 
at the end of a, of a play, the actors come to the edge of the stage, they bow and they relinquish the role. In film, the illusion continues in some ways even beyond the closing credits. Chip Spaulding is a stuntman. Yeah, so Chip Spaulding... So Claude Ballard is on this journey as a concession agent for the Lumiere brothers, and he's sent to America. He's also sent to Australia. He's somewhat modelled on the real-life uh, concession agent who was sent to Australia, a guy named Maria Sestier, who actually made Australia's very first films. So Claude Ballard arrives in Sydney in 1896, and he's assembling a kind of movie-making family. And the piece that he discovers uh, in, in actually in Tamarama in Sydney at the Royal Aquarium and Pleasure Grounds is this wonderful, talented, performing daredevil named Chip Spaulding. And he has a very particular stunt uh, and basically his stunt is that he is a tightrope walker. And at the time in, in Tamarama, there was at the pleasure grounds a wire that extended from cliff to cliff. And there was a young tightrope walker who balanced out there and, and went from one side to the other. In the novel, Chip actually has an additional <laughs> layer to that stunt, which is uh, he sets himself on fire and then jumps into the ocean. But it's defying death yes. in some way. Very it's, much so. Is it suggesting something then about film there as well i think these all these characters are in some ways uh a little bit broken uh and also there's something in their backgrounds that make them want to be noticed and so they all come to film as a way of being noticed and a way of trying to find some fulfillment yeah. so sensationalism in some ways hal bender is an entrepreneur yeah, so Hal Bender is the scrappy Brooklyn kid whose family runs uh, a novelty parlor. And in the 1890s, what happens that transforms him is he goes to see, the same night that Claude meets Sabine and then kind of their fates collide, um, Hal Bender goes to see this Lumiere cinematograph uh, exhibition that Claude is running. And he realizes in a moment that basically the novelty parlor where they're running gramophones and Edison's kinetoscope, which is basically a peep show, is dead, and that the future is all about projected images. But what Hell does is that he ends up basically repeating his father's mistakes in a new industry. His father went bankrupt, and so Hell puts uh, all his efforts and money into trying to create the new Claude Ballard uh, sensational piece with all yep. the stunts and the celebrity. Yeah, ultimately it kind of brings him down to what you find in this early heyday of, of silent film. You know, they show up in, in some places like vaudeville houses and, and the money side of film, even early on, sometimes came from uh, you know, less than prestigious sources. Uh, and so I wanted to explore that and explore the kind of way that film from the very beginning had this commercial side that was uh, a little bit scrappy in some ways. Yeah, but you tap into that commercial, that sensational, that celebrity, uh, and the notion of almost trying to capture life in those characters. If we can take a step back then, you've also done a lot of research because there's a lot of information here about uh, people like Thomas Edison who sent them broke in some ways, these characters. Right. 
Yeah, so Thomas Edison uh, has a has a fascinating uh, role to play in early film. Uh, the first before Hollywood, there was a town called Fort Lee, New Jersey, which was really America's uh, first movie town, where there are about eight or nine studios, including where Universal, Paramount, and Fox all got their beginnings. Thomas Edison kind of presided over this industry in in an interesting way. His approach to film was he wanted to control its commercial destiny. The Lumiere brothers were really about uh, evangelizing this new art form. And so what Thomas Edison does uh, is he basically starts acquiring other people's patents, uh, the mechanisms in films, and he starts to do things like send private detectives out to other people's film shoots to make sure none of his copyright is being infringed upon. And then the really big thing that happens in 1908 is he sets up the Motion Picture Patent Company. And overnight, uh, it becomes illegal to import celluloid from outside of the United States. You can only make film on Eastman Kodak uh, film, and George Eastman happens to be a member of this patent company. Uh, And so what happens in Fort Lee, this first movie town, is the European filmmakers get fed up, they start leaving and going back to Europe, and the American filmmakers start fleeing to Hollywood, which, you know, the weather's better out there, you can film all year long. The other thing is they're literally running away from lawsuits uh, by, from Thomas Edison. But he's quite malicious. It's not the general image we have right. of Edison. He was quite malicious, actually, if you look at the early days of his battles with Westinghouse over AC versus DC current and electricity. Um, he always had a little bit of a history of uh, being, surrounding himself with lawyers. But what happens by the film industry, you know, he's essentially playing catch-up. He comes to film a little bit late. He's invented this thing that is essentially a peep show. You know, you look through a viewfinder. But he quickly develops a projector and a, a kind of matching invention to the Lumieres. And he's really trying to, in some ways, overcompensate for the fact that he wasn't the very first one out of the gate with the true communal cinematic experience. Now, what's interesting for me in this novel, then, is that where these uh, these threads about this creation of the film that Claude Ballard's putting together reaches its climax and they confront Edison, you think, ah, oh, well, is that the resolution of the novel? But the novel keeps going. It and it goes into World War One. Yep. And film takes on another role in that setting. Yes, it does. Um, and, and part of the reason I wanted to do that is, you know, one of the big burdens in the life of Claude Ballard is this obsession he has with Sabine Montrose. He builds this very ambitious studio. They make this cinematic masterpiece that ultimately kind of unravels his life. And I wanted, uh, you know, them... I didn't want that to be the end of the story. I wanted it to actually show that in some ways he's pulled along in the slipstream of this evolving medium. And at the very beginning of World War One, what was fascinating is that when Germany invades Belgium uh, in August of 1914, there's kind of this... Uh, free-for-all of journalists, cameramen, cinematographers, and even what were termed war tourists who arrive in Belgium and set up shop in places like Antwerp. And they're essentially waiting to film the fall of Antwerp, the siege of Antwerp. And the issue was that the Belgian military had locked down every, you know, horse and vehicle in the country. So these men, for the most part, 
couldn't get to the front, but there was one, uh, a guy named Albert Dawson, who was an American cinematographer, who did something very smart and something I've used in the book, which is that he did a deal with the Belgian Red Cross that in return for access to a vehicle, he would donate all the proceeds of his newsreels. And what happens with him later on is fascinating, uh, is that he starts to embed with the Germans to film their side of you know the, of those of those battles because America was neutral. So in some ways, Germany was vying for the popular sentiment back in America to keep America out of the war. But you get the rise of propaganda. You do basically. This is where they're working it out. I mean, they're and when and and I always thought that that would look a certain way. But what you actually find is that there was a German kind of attache office in New York that was set up as a cultural exchange uh, program. And so there was a propaganda machine inside of the United States for most of World War I, where they were making, you know, sponsoring radio broadcasts. And they were also making films back in Belgium and actually trying to get them distributed in the United States. So what you get over the course of this novel is this sort of naivety with the creation of film, Mm. how it represents people's lives, how it overtakes people's lives, how it's then used to manipulate people's Mm. lives. I mean, I may be being grossly generalising, but there's a continuum. Yeah, it's a little bit like a runaway train. I mean, it it, it kind of... uh you know, what's, I'm always interested in this kind of collision course between art and commerce. And so you, you invent, the Lumiers invent an art form. But what they can't control is the various commercial and ideological purposes that film gets put to. And the social impact yeah. that has. Right. Because there are a couple of questions now in terms of where is film now? Mm. You've, you've encompassed uh, a century mm-hmm. uh, or so, but what's the role of film now, do you think? Well, I think it's really interesting. I think film today, like we're living in a moment where there's uh, a huge outpouring of narrative and storytelling, and film is just one piece of it. But, you know, today people can consume, uh, you know, the filmed image, uh, the digital image in so many different formats, you know, on their small screens, uh, on Netflix. Um, and, And so I think it's become... Uh, very different to the kinds of uh, early uh, on efforts that happen. Although, if you look at early silent film, by the time sound comes in, you know, there were 10,000 silent films made that were all feature length uh, just in the United States. But the thing to remember with that era, unlike today, is, you know, 75% of all silent films have been lost forever. And so we're living in an age of uh, almost, we're, we're completely overwhelmed with different kinds of film narratives. Uh, but meanwhile, from the past and the birth of this medium, there's this huge loss uh, involved. Another question then is the parallel, the rise of the film industry. Are we seeing something similar with the rise of the digital age and what can be done with technology and computers from that naivety to how it consumes our lives? I think it's that's an interesting question. I mean, I keep coming back to, you know, what will cultural commentators be looking at uh, from our period in 100 years from now? You know, what kinds of uh, visual stories will survive and will be uh, kind of archived and then also represent who we are, and probably part of that is not just film, but also, uh, you know, social media. Um, Will we be looking at (laughs) President Trump's, uh, you know, Twitter feed (laughs) and his tweets as a window into culture? So I think that's interesting. President Trump's uh, 
presidential library will just be a tweet. <laughs> That's right. Well, that brings us then to the last character, in some ways, Martin Embry, who's mm. doing a PhD in film studies. It's where the novel starts and yep. ends in some ways, where you've encapsulated then right. all of this. Yeah, so there's kind of a frame narrative where in the early 1960s, Martin Embry, who is, a, a, you know, as you say, a film graduate student, comes to interview this kind of forgotten figure in Claude Ballard, who's now in his 80s. He's living at the very rundown Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel, which in real life is where D.W. Griffiths and some of the other icons of the silent era basically lived in exile and completely forgotten by Hollywood. So uh, we pick up his story, and what we discover through the evolving friendship and interviews between Martin and Claude, uh, is that there is one remaining print left of the electric hotel, uh, locked inside a metal trunk under Claude's bed, uh, and it's in good enough shape that it can be restored, and that's and that's what happens. Um, so I wanted to also show, almost as a bookend to the invention of cinema in the 1890s by the Lumiere brothers, and then the evangelization of of you know the, of that medium, I wanted to show what happened to many of those people who were pioneers in the silent film world uh, and because most of them were were largely forgotten once sound came in and Claude Ballard is certainly an example of that. Just to end then on Claude Ballard for a brief moment he had the sensation of holding his own beating heart inside a bald fist he's winding the camera <laughs> and that's his heart in many ways that film has been a substitute for his heart. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And, and um, you know, I think the idea of Claude's gaze and the way he lives, he lives very much through not only his eyes, but through the winding of the camera. Uh, and, and so it is a substitute in some ways for his emotional life. So the book is The Electric Hotel. The author, Dominic Smith, uh, it's about, in many ways, the film industry or the impact of the film industry on people's lives and on society itself. And it is an Alan and Unwin release. So, Dominic, thank you once again for coming in. Thanks so much.